Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. You are a creator. You are a sustainer of heaven and earth. You are good. You are sovereign. You are in control. So, Lord, help us to give you control even here this morning as we hear from your word, as we sit under the preaching of your word, because this would be in vain unless you are here, unless you are in control of it. May you speak through me. Um, My words would be in vain without you. So, God, help us to receive your word as you conform us more to the image of Christ here from Psalm 127. So, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of your Spirit to illuminate the truth in our hearts here this morning as you soften our hearts and open our minds today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You may have a seat. For those who don't know, my name's Josh. If you're uh, new here or you're visiting uh, with us, if you haven't been with us, you, uh, you'll notice that we're going through the Psalms. And we've been going through, uh, for the past couple of weeks, a uh, couple of months, we've heard sermons on different Psalms, different categories of Psalms, like Thanksgiving Psalms or History Psalms. Praise Hillel Psalms, as Brad spoke on a couple weeks ago. Lament Psalms like Damien last week and Jordan Lapine uh, last month. And so I thought I'd pick a different uh, category of Psalms uh, from the Wisdom Psalms. Specifically, Psalm 127 here, which is a song of ascent of Solomon. You'll see that on the top of uh, the chapter right before verse 1. A song of ascent of Solomon. Now, before we get here, let's look at what that means. The Psalms of Ascent are a group of Psalms, starting with Psalm 120 all the way to 134. And these songs of Ascent are songs that people, uh, the people of Israel would have sung on the way up to Jerusalem. Psalm 122, verse 4, that, that's what it says. They're going up to Jerusalem since they're commanded by God to ascend the hill of Zion, three times a year, likely, to remember and celebrate who God is and what he's done for them through certain feasts. And you'll see that in Deuteronomy 16, 16, if you're curious. And this is interesting because Psalm 127 is all about work and toil and labor. And the people of Israel, as they walked up to Jerusalem here to worship at the Temple Mount, they would have had to pause the regular routines of work. And you might also notice that Psalm 127 is a song of a sense of Solomon. This is interesting because this is one of the only two psalms that's specifically attributed to Solomon in the whole Psalter, the other being Psalm 72. And uh, some people have asked questions, there's some ambiguity surrounding the authorship of Psalm 72, and many have wondered the same about this Psalm 127. Did Solomon write this himself, or did his father David write it for him? It's kind of the question surrounding the Psalms attributed to Solomon. And uh, there's two reasons I want to suggest here this morning, and I could be corrected on this, but uh, these hints from the passage itself likely point to Solomon as the author. And this will be helpful for us this morning as we we unpack and understand the background of Psalm 127, I'm not just here to give clever random facts, but um, he, here's the first one. Uh, this is a wisdom psalm that emphasizes the vanity of life without God. And that's also emphasized, as you might recollect, in another wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, by its author or the preacher of Ecclesiastes, who is widely accepted to be who? Solomon. And second, second reason for Solomon's authorship here is the warning against laboring in vain makes more sense coming from Solomon rather than his father David because Solomon was the one who was blessed by God to build the house of the Lord, that is the temple, instead of David. And that's the first big idea here in Psalm 127. If you look at your outline, uh, the first uh, big idea is without the Lord, your labor is in vain. Let's look at verse 1. And the first uh, type of vain labor there is building a house. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Right away, the first observations we need to make here are the two characters in action. First, the Lord who builds. Second, those who build, that is mankind who builds. 
And he says here that if the Lord is not actively building, then the humans who are building labor in vain. But the question is here, is how can one know if God is active so that his or her labor in building a house is not in vain. So let's look at some examples uh, in Scripture to answer this. In Genesis chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. You can if you'd like to. But in Genesis 4, we hear about the first building recorded in Scripture. And it was built by Cain's son, Enoch, in Genesis 4.17. And this is not to be confused with the Enoch who walked with God. So Enoch, Cain's son, built this building. And the verse prior, in verse 16 of Genesis 4, actually tells us that this was built after Cain killed Abel, who then, verbatim, quote, went away from the presence of the Lord and settled east of Eden. So Enoch, Cain's son, who's away from the presence of the Lord, as the first builder of this building, labored and built in vain, simply because the Lord wasn't there. At least his favorable presence, as some people have understood that, was not present with Cain and his descendants. Another example of vain labor in Scripture, which some of you might have been thinking already, is Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. When the people started to build the city and tower and said, let us make our name great. But if you think about it, the Lord didn't let them finish, right? And here's what it says, Genesis eleven eight. And the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Thus the people labored and built in vain. Right? So here it's an unfinished building, right? Yet a finished building can still be built in vain. It's another way you can build in vain. Think about Jesus' teaching on Matthew 7 regarding the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Many of us know this. So the house was finished, right? And Jesus teaches it that even though it stood for a while, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. It was in vain. It was finished, but it was still built in vain because it wasn't built on the rock. Yet even beyond that, even finished buildings that stand for a long time can still be built in vain. This is where we um, hear the preacher and the lament of the preacher in Ecclesiastes saying, the, uh, talking about the fleeting enjoyment of his labors in light of the reality of sickness and death. Uh, he, he says this in Ecclesiastes 2.20 to 21. Let me read it for you. I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. And chapter 2, verse 4 there includes building houses. Because, why? Sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything, because of sickness or death, to be enjoyed by someone else who didn't toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So you could build, and it might be finished, and it might even stand for a really long time, but it's still in vain without the Lord. Now, this is getting really depressing. I'm sorry, but that's the nature of our passage here. And the point is, unless the Lord builds the house, both physically or metaphorically, those who build labor in vain. Unless the builder looks to the heavens and humbly recognizes that it is God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, everything in it, if he is the one who's not building the house, then he, the, the builder is laboring in vain. Building shelter that is not founded on the Lord is or will be rendered vain or meaningless. That's the point here. And the same idea is applied to maintaining security, which is a second type of vain labor that Solomon identifies here, a second point in your outline, watching over a city. Halfway through verse 1. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In the ancient Near East, most, if not all, cities were walled up to protect against enemy invasions. Deuteronomy 3, 2 Chronicles 14, there's many examples of that. And there were usually men at the highest point of the city watching over the city to look out for enemies from afar. 
And these watchmen would obviously watch the city day and night. Again, I have lots of scriptures here, uh, uh, and this is where I'm getting that from. And these watchmen watching day and night would be responsible for sounding the trumpet to warn the city of incoming enemies. Ezekiel 33.6. Yet Solomon asserts here in Psalm 127 that watchmen who stay awake overnight labor in vain unless the Lord is watching over it. So here the Lord is sovereign over the security of people or cities, whether in the day or through the night, Solomon says. And unless the watchman who looks downward to protect the whole city, unless that person looks upwards instead and humbly relies on the Lord who never sleeps and watches over the city 24-7 to protect it, then that watchman stays awake in vain still laboring in vain. And this is the two types of vain labor that uh, Solomon identifies here. Building a house for shelter, watching over a city for its security. Which Solomon then says results in our third point here. Eating the bread of anxious toil. Verse 2. It is in vain. There it is, that language. That you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Now, when you think of rising up early, that's actually encouraged throughout Scripture um, in order to get important work done. Exodus 8.20 with Moses rising up early to talk to Pharaoh and set uh, God's people free. Job chapter 1 verse 5, same thing. And Nora's going late to rest explicitly prohibited or looked down on in Scripture, although resting too much is but not necessarily going late to rest. And the natural implication of the progression here of rising up early and going late to rest is to eat bread, right? It leads, hard work leads to the reward of eating bread. That's really the point here, which is actually a command in Scripture. In uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not, what? Eat So Solomon isn't condemning any of these things individually, but rather he is warning against the habitual pattern of rising up early, going late to rest in order to reap the reward and eat the bread of it, which he describes as anxious toil. Now this phrase anxious toil is quoted as painful labors in the NASB translation and This connects this idea back to Genesis 3 and the curse of sin on this fallen world, right? When God says to Adam, curse is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So Solomon understands that anxious toil, vain labor, those are results of the fall of mankind to sin and death. And that hard work and diligence is the means by which fallen man is to literally put bread on the table. Solomon says that in Proverbs 12, 11. But the anxious toil that Solomon is warning against here is this. It is man's self-reliant toil or labor that produces or leads to self-gratifying fruit or rewards. That's going to be a really important point as we go through Man's self-reliant labor that produces self-gratifying fruit or reward. Whether it's anxious toil and trying to make ends meet on your own, or anxious toil and trying to make your bank account explode on your own, same deal. Anxious toil and eating the bread of it. I mean, have you met anyone like this? As I thought about this, I can't uh, help but think of some family and friends of mine, unbelievers and believers, unfortunately, who do exactly this, restlessly, anxiously, toiling day and night, working 12 to 16 hour days on the regular, missing family time, sleep, and worst of all, time with the Lord, individually and time with the Lord's people corporately all for the sake of bearing the fruit or reward of their own labors. These people are like the builders that Solomon talks about here. They rise up early to get to work. 
The watchmen that stay awake late into the night who in their sleepless and restless toiling and working with their own two hands fail to recognize that God is their shelter. That God is the one that builds a house. God is their security. God is the one who watches over the city. And God is their sustenance. God gives their sustenance from eating bread. All of this is in vain without the Lord. So with all that said, this is what eating the bread of anxious toil means. This is our goal here. Eating the bread of anxious toil is to place the fruit or reward of your own labors into your own hands and carrying the weight of that, uh, that labor and, and, and its success or failure instead of placing them into God's hands. Okay? Or as John Piper would say, it, letting God take the final burden of responsibility for whether the house gets built or whether the city gets made secure or the bread is set on the table. That's what it is. Eating the bread of anxious toil is placing it into your own hands rather than God's. And none of us can carry the fruit of that. None of us can carry the weight of the success or failure of our labors without God. So Solomon here wants us to switch gears instead to give it to God's hands. And he gives reasons why people of God should stop anxiously toiling or laboring in vain and rather start placing the fruit of their labors into God's hands. And that's our second big idea. Why? For, because he gives to his beloved. God gives to his beloved. And the first gift we'll see here is sleep. Verse 2 there at the end. Eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. I don't know if you, as you were reading, uh, or uh, if you've read this passage before, if this has sunk in. So I just want to take a moment to let this sink in, as in, nappers rejoice. <laughs> God's gift is good. And one application of this is to hang these words up in your bedroom. No, I'm kidding. But um, you might ask, why? Why does God ge- choose to give to his beloved sleep? Well, let's bring it together. Well, God graciously gives to those whom he loves the gift of sleep so that in light of verses 1 and 2, his beloved's labors would not be in vain. Right? God loves his people so much that he wants their labors to be truly fruitful and truly rewarding, which means that They stop eating the bread of their anxious toil and place the fruit of their labors into God's hands. And it means that they need his gift of sleep to avoid eating the bread of their anxious toil. Now here's the implication of this as well. To reap the fruit and reward of your own labors or eat the bread of your anxious toil from early mornings to late nights, to do that is to refuse this gift that God is giving to you. It's like saying, God, I am much more powerful than you have designed me to be. So God, I don't need your gift of sleep. I mean, we might not say that out loud, but if we live like this builder and watchman that stays awake in vain and goes to work early and anxiously toils, that's essentially what we're saying. To be clear, the context of this passage speaks against those who refuse God's gift of sleep due to human arrogance and efforts, rather than those who struggle to receive God's good gift of sleep due to human limitations. I know people who have sleep apnea and other conditions. um, Solomon, uh, I don't think, is speaking against that, but rather the human arrogance of God. I, I don't need sleep because I can live off of this myself with my own two hands. The builder who rises early, the watchman who stays awake, goes late to rest, are anxious toilers who labor in vain day and night because they are literally doing this, refusing the gift of God to his beloved. It's a gift of love and grace. At the same time, in understanding that we should not refuse this gift, I want to clarify that we also need to understand that we should not overuse this gift. 
Right? Solomon warns against sleeping too much throughout the whole book of Proverbs. Love not sleep, he says, lest you come to poverty. The sluggard sleeps all day. Right? You know, it's condemned in Scripture. And here, I'm not suggesting a limit or number of hours to sleep. Please don't get that from this. That varies depending on each person. But all I'll say is these. Only babies sleep for long and extended hours through the night, so adults shouldn't sleep like babies. Um, you know, outside of sleepless work week or maybe after sleepless nights due to uh, the nature of parenthood or something. But the, 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 the emphasis here is that the work of your own two hands and literally to stay awake laboring in vain and refusing God's gift to sleep, that, that's what Solomon is guarding against here. Yet the emphasis of Psalm 127 is receiving the gift of God to his beloved soul. Sleep, but not too much, Solomon says. Don't refuse it, don't overuse it either, but receive it so you can restfully labor in dependence on Yahweh and laboring, not laboring in vain, sorry. Al Mohler says it like this, with an appropriate balance and the right mindset, this becomes not the sluggard's sin, but the believer's blessing from God. It's beautiful. As a young father, I wish I could go back to my unmarried and childless self years ago who used to say sleep is for the weak. And so I could do all of these other things, whether it's work or fun things. And uh, I now realize there's a diagnosis for that condition today, and it's called FOMO, um, fear of missing out, if you didn't know. But um, now I would tell myself, Josh, you are weak, so get to sleep, right? We can't do everything as human beings. We are weak beings. That's just who God designed us to be. And guess who is strong when we are weak? God is. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. While you sleep. Therefore, I, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And Solomon here says that includes the gift of sleep to God's beloved. When we sleep, it's as if we say, God, I am finite, you are not. I am weak, but you are strong. So as I helplessly sleep in my weakness, God, would you powerfully watch over me and work and keep me safe until tomorrow. And here's the fruit of my labors from today. Because I know, God, you never sleep. Psalm 121, verses 3 to 4. The one who keeps you neither slumbers nor sleeps. God never sleeps because he's always working for his glory. And for the good of his beloved, Romans eight twenty eight. In the NASB translation, Psalm 127, verse, three, uh, verse 2, is rendered, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. And we could take it that way as well. Just think about when God put Adam to sleep. While the man was sleeping, God took one of his ribs and created what? The woman. To help the man work and keep the garden so that both of his beloved image bearers might flourish together as they do God's work together by being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth in order to subdue it and have dominion over it. And that's God's blessing to them, which no doubt Solomon would have had in mind when he transitions to the second gift here that God gives to his beloved aside from sleep, that is, sons. Look at verses 3 to 5. Behold, children, that's the word sons there, are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And so that's the first observation we need to make here. In other translations, this word children is translated as sons, and this emphasis is quite important because of two reasons. One, if you look at the passage, it makes more sense contextually if we take the warfare imagery of verses 4 and 5 into account, that these sons would be with their father, speaking with their enemies in the gate. That's quite literally who it would have been. Sons with their father. And the second reason is that sons um, received primary rights to the family inheritance, which is why Solomon says that they're a heritage, other words, inheritance from the Lord. 
which is the second observation, that children are a heritage or inheritance from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And so now this applies it to all children, both sons and daughters, though the emphasis is on sons. Listen to Jacob's words when his brother Esau asks him about his children, Genesis 33, verse 5. Esau asks, who are these with you? So Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Much like sleep, this is a good gift that our good God graciously gives to his beloved. This is why we cheer and rejoice, right, when children are in the womb, as we should, because they all come from the Lord. It is such good news when we hear about pregnancy announcements or baby showers in our church, and we need to rejoice with those who are expecting because we're celebrating the gift of God's beloved. However, there is an important implication here that I think should be um, talked about here this morning. If God chooses, out of his grace and goodness, to give any gift to his beloved, then God can choose in his good and sovereign will to withhold any gift to his beloved. And it doesn't change the fact that they are God's beloved. Okay, and here's an example from Scripture. The same beloved Jacob who confessed that God graciously gave him children also confessed that the same God sovereignly withheld from him children with his wife Rachel. Genesis 30. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister and she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel righteously. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? This is why we sing songs like blessed be your name. You give and take away God, but my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. It comes right out of Job. We can't demand a gift from God as if we deserve it. Because we're all sinners who don't deserve any of his gracious gifts of grace. As we read here in our call to worship this morning in Ephesians 2. Not having the gift of children doesn't mean one is less beloved because God still gives his beloved good gifts and the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. Yet he still gives them good, common blessings like sleep for one. So God is sovereign in his giving and he is sovereign in his withholding. And he is good regardless. That's a very important point to see here as you look at this passage. Yet the question remains, how does God's good gift of children relate to what Solomon's been talking about in verses 1 and 2, about laboring in vain? Well, let's connect the dots here like we did with the gift of sleep. First, it's no coincidence that Solomon talks about children after he talks about building a house. Because God himself used this double meaning of house in 2 Samuel 7 when David said, I want to build you a house, God, that is physical temple. But God tells David, no, I will build you a house. And God was referring to physical offspring that will come down David's line, starting with Solomon himself. And the second reason is, if the building of a house can refer to physical offspring, then the Lord who gives the gift of children builds the house through the means of husband and wife in a monogamous marriage who physically come together to build the house. Isn't that beautiful? The Bible isn't ashamed to talk about these things, nor should we. And this is how God chooses to build that house, the physical offspring. And another implication of that is we shouldn't deviate from that. The third is that this means that laboring in vain and eating the bread of anxious toil in this case and building a house of physical offspring is when parents fail to recognize that the Lord is a primary builder. You can all probably say amen to that in concept, but I suspect this can be a bit foggy in practice. And so allow me to flesh this out for um, you know, veteran parents here or new and upcoming ones here. Eating the bread of anxious toilet parents is when you feel this sense of identity or security or this superiority complex after you have simply built the house. Whether that's just 
by having a baby or whether that's after a pregnancy announcement or the birth or upbringing of your child. This is a, a sneaky little temptation. I point to myself the most here as a young dad because, uh, you know, as I, as I speak of, of the objective truth of God's word here, I can't help but think of this cute Filipino Mennonite half-breed named Luca. And, you know, when he was born to Emily and I last May, there's this sneaky temptation for us to think, yes, we've done it. We've reached it. Veteran parents, you know all about this sneaky temptation from the pit of hell. This applies to grandparents as well. I've talked with my own parents about this. And we need to caution. We need to beware. This is what Solomon guards against. Unless the Lord builds the house, you have labored in vain. Parents, this means that remembering your children as a gift from the Lord. So treat them like a gift that you don't deserve, as opposed to your greatest accomplishment in life that you can carry around and show to everyone, like Simba and Lion King in the circle of life. Yes, enjoy God's reward. This is God's reward. Some people have told me about some of these things and said, Josh, it's not a bad thing to do this and that and rejoice in your child and you know, all of these things. I'm like, yes and amen. We need to enjoy the reward of children but not so much that you confuse the gift with the giver. Rejoice that your children might look like you. Look, Emily and I are still at tension who look who looks like more, but that's okay. Our job is to make them look less like us and more like Christ. So stop eating the bread of anxious toil in building a house in this sense of physical offspring. That's what Solomon is saying. Not only does the gift of children connect to building a house in this sense, but it also connects to the security that comes from watching over a city. In verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. We all know that arrows were typically used for war. But the context of this passage uses it as a metaphor for protection and security and peace. When Solomon likens the children of one's youth to those who help defend the city from its enemies in the gate. And that's where negotiations were usually held, if you remember our series. In Genesis, Genesis 23, Abraham speaks with the Hittites, his enemies, in the gate where everyone was. And so it's a, it's a metaphor of peace and protection. Notice the progression here, though. In verse 3, the fruit of the womb suggests these children who are newly born or young children. Here, the children of one's youth implies that the father is now older, and so his sons or children are older because they have been raised up in the way that they should go, as Solomon would say. Raised up enough to be able to speak with their enemies in the gate with their father who will not be intimidated, who will not be put to shame by his enemies because of his arrow-like children. And for this reason, the father is blessed because he has a full quiver of protection that he's raised and likely in the way of the Lord because they're under the law here. And so he would have raised his defense, his quiver of protection against his enemies in the gate. That's what this means. And while the arrow imagery suggests this, the question is this. How do children literally help protect their father or city from their enemies in the gate? Well, the simple answer is this. A full quiver means there would be lots of them. They would outnumber their enemies. This is a very serious passage for our Mennonite friends today. Um, but all jokes aside, we need to pause here because this verse has been abused many times as if God were commanding every parent today to have at least a dozen children or more. We've got to remember that this was written under the old covenant where obedience was tied to blessings, which included children. Listen to Deuteronomy 8, uh, 28, sorry, verses 3 to 4. If you obey, Israel, the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. So many children meant many blessings from Yahweh to his people, 
And this also connects back to God's blessing to Adam and Eve as he told them to be fruitful and multiply, right? God blessed them and then gave them those commands and that commission. However, under the new covenant in Christ today, we have a new command, at least a renewed command and commission, which means being fruitful and multiplying has a much bigger scope than just having physical children. Why? Because the blessing is Christ. And believers are blessed in Christ by being adopted to God as sons through Christ, the beloved Son. That's Ephesians 1, 5-6. This means that we pass on this blessing today to spiritual children in the faith as well, including physical children, but now also to spiritual children. Go make disciples, learners of Christ, of all nations. For instance, Paul talked about this when he says that he became a father to Onesimus, his child, in the faith. That's Philemon 10. Paul tells the Thessalonians that he became to them, quote, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children for the sake of the gospel. And not to mention that Paul was single, celibate, wished that people would be as he was, 1 Corinthians 7, 7. So the blessing of a full quiver today includes not just physical children, but also spiritual ones, which means unmarried people or married people who are even childless can have lots of. It is more than what we're talking here. Much like sleep, however, please don't hear me advocating for a specific number of physical children here. In all honesty, I wanted three to four kids maximum. Emily wanted 12 to 15 minimum. Um, Because a full quiver here doesn't specify a number. Charles Spurgeon wisely says, a quiver may be small and yet full. And then the blessing is obtained. In any case, we may be sure that a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of children that he possesseth. Seth. That is what Charles Spurgeon saith. Um, And it's very wise. But in our understanding of its original meaning in Psalm 127, yes, a full quiver meant lots and lots of children, lots of babies and sons who would grow up and help defend the city's enemies in the gate with their blessed father. In fact, a full quiver likely also implies that the father's children would go on to build their houses later on, children's children, and eventually they'd defend a whole city with the children and their families, all of them together. The whole quiver of protection results in a blessed father, blessed parents with children. So that's Psalm 127. We've seen that building a house for shelter, watching over a city for its security, all of it is in vain. All of that labor is in vain without the Lord. And the result of that is eating the bread of anxious toil, that is placing it, your labors, the fruit of your labors, into your own hands instead of placing it in God's hands and letting him produce the fruit of that labor. Because he's the one who's truly at work. And Solomon's reasons is he says, Stop laboring in vain because the Lord has given to his beloved the gift of sleep and the gift of sons and children to remind them of who is truly at work in building and watching. So as Solomon wrote this psalm, he knew that God was at work in building the house as he promised his father, David. Even though he built the house of the Lord, Solomon did, instead of David, who would have built in vain if David did do it because God said no, he didn't bless it. Even though Solomon did that, Solomon also knew that he would have built in vain himself unless God was building the house himself. That is, a royal house of physical offspring from whom the son of David would come from. Not Solomon, Jesus Christ. And God showed his power, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand so that he might put all things under his feet and give him his head over all things to the church, which is the spiritual house that God is building on the foundation of apostles and prophets with his son as the cornerstone and the father will not be put to shame by his enemies in the gate because the gates of hell will not prevail against it, against his firstborn son and his other adopted sons through the son, Jesus Christ. This is why Paul 
talks about how God raised Jesus from the dead and how God worked in raising Jesus from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. That's all about the resurrection, that chapter. And he says this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching of Christ and your faith as believers is in vain. But God did raise him from the dead. That's what Paul preaches. This is why he confidently sends God's grace towards me, in the same chapter, was not in vain because of his work in raising Christ from the dead. Because of that, Paul says, I worked, labored harder than any of them, any of the apostles before me, even though he was the least. But listen to this. He says this, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. God's work in Christ was not in vain. Maybe you haven't received Christ this morning. Maybe you haven't received God's gift of grace in Christ this morning. So if, if you're one of these people, I, I would plead you this morning, stop unbelieving. Stop living and laboring in vain on your own and believe in Christ who worked on the cross for you that you might be raised up to life with him on the last day. Or maybe you have believed this morning. Maybe you have believed but are straying away like sheep. Prodigal, would you stop eating the bread of your anxious toil and return to the Father in his open arms who wants to bring you back to himself and protect you by watching over you? As Peter says, he's a shepherd and overseer of your soul. None of us can live and labor on our own because God has given us the gift of his son who gives eternal life, the true reward in Christ, who is bringing many sons to glory, Hebrews 2.10. And God has gifted us a true and eternal rest in Christ, much more pleasant than temporary sleep because Christ is the one who sustains us and takes the load and pressure off of our anxious toil. When he says, come to me, All you who are weary, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest, not just for your body, but for your souls. So we as believers have a part to play, a yoke to take in Christ here. Paul says we are God's fellow laborers, Right? Planters, waterers, or nothing. But yet, God, in His grace, makes us fellow laborers of His. So here's our application points here, uh, which is, I summed that as a big idea, our labor in the Lord today. And the first one from Psalm 127 is this. Stop eating the bread of anxious toil. Whether a believer or unbeliever, the temptation of eating the bread of our anxious toil and placing the fruit of our own labors into our own hands is all around us. Think about it. People graduate high school and work towards a college degree so that they can stamp their names on it. Or people might start their own business with their own names on it, work their way up in their workplaces so that their names have seniority beside it. I could give many more examples. You know what I'm talking about, but here's the point. It's not that your physical name being known is bad or is wrong, but it's when the fruit of your labors get to your head and you start thinking and living, this is my life. This is my degree, my job, my business, my kids. I did this and I did that. You might build a house, whatever that is, You might be the kings and queens of it, maybe even enjoy it for a really long time. But if it was done without the Lord, unless the Lord builds it and watches over it, it will fall someday, somehow, if not immediately. You know that, right? Instead, we ought to say God did this. Or God did that. This is God's house, not mine. This is God's money, not mine. This is God's kids, not mine. Parents, there's a specific application here. Your identity is not found in your children, in your accomplishments and children. Nothing matters unless the Lord builds it. 
This also applies to things we do for the Lord as well. Quote unquote ministry. You might serve on a Sunday morning here. You might be busy during the week doing ministry in your community, which I'm not condemning. The Word of God encourages us and commands us to do that. You might even work at a church or a Bible college or a Bible camp, but unless you entrust your labor and its fruit to the Lord, then your work is still in vain. You cannot, we cannot carry the weight of our labor, success, or failure. So we need to stop eating the bread of our anxious toil and rather place the fruit of our labors into God's hands so that it might bear real and eternal fruit. Stop doing everything for your name and start doing everything in Jesus' name, Colossians 3.17. Stop eating the bread of anxious toil. Instead, Here's a second application point from Psalm 127. Instead, restfully labor in the Lord. First, I want to emphasize that word restfully because Psalm 127 tells us that God gives to his beloved the gift of sleep. Why? So that we can depend on him for tomorrow as we place the fruit of our labors into his hands that we did today or yesterday so that all of that labor will not be in vain. So beloved, as Solomon would say, would you receive the gift of sleep this morning? I hope it's a resounding yes, maybe with a yawn. Maybe you have had a long day of anxious toll yesterday or this week. Would you receive it? Maybe even this afternoon. I'm not kidding. Nap in humility towards the Lord. Maybe even go to bed earlier tonight, whatever the appropriate time is for you, so you can appropriately rest and start developing habits of godly rest moving forward. And again, I want to emphasize that receiving God's gift of sleep in humility is to simply not refuse it in arrogance. So don't refuse it, yet also don't overuse it either, but receive it so that you can restfully labor in dependence on God and laboring not in vain. We sleep so that we can labor better for the glory of God. And that's why he gives it to us. And the second part of this application point is this, restfully labor in the Lord. That's what the title of the sermon is, Labor in the Lord. No matter what our labors are, be it our physical jobs or ministry service or even housework, even the seemingly insignificant jobs like doing dishes or mowing the lawn, all of that cannot be done without the Lord. The labor of the Christian must be labor for the Lord and in the Lord, Colossians 3.23. And it must be restful labor rather than anxious toil. As Solomon tells us, as the Word of God tells us this morning. Let me give you a New Testament example of restful labor versus anxious toil. In Luke chapter 10, when Martha welcomed Jesus into her house, her sister Mary sat on Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching while leaving Martha. It says this in verse 39 to 42. She had a sister, Martha, called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving, housework, hospitality, which is commanded, not a bad thing. And so Martha goes up to Jesus and says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which is Jesus. And that will not be taken away from her. Mary wasn't being lazy. She was going to do her job of serving and being hospitable, nor was Martha wrong in being hospitable and doing the housework that she needed to do. Since Christians back then and now are commanded to be hospitable, especially to traveling teachers of the gospel. But here's the thing. Mary understood that unless she received the bread of life, her labor in serving bread to Jesus himself would be in vain. Thus, she was restfully laboring in the Lord. And Jesus lovingly helps Martha understand that without the Lord, she was anxiously toiling. 
in vain. And this reminder is for us today. You might be busy working your 50 to 60 hour weeks, maybe active in ministry alongside your work. But maybe you're neglecting sleep and masking diligence with distrust in the Lord and potentially neglecting your home, maybe neglecting to raise up your physical children in the Lord if your parents, like the Blessed Father does in Psalm 127, And for us here this morning to raise up spiritual children and and go outside of our homes because the emphasis is not just us in our homes anymore. It's the house of the Lord, the people of God. Or you might be busy working 30, 40 hour weeks, busy with housework, with appropriate rest, but doing exactly that, neglecting to labor in the Lord with your church and your community and raising up spiritual children. Enough with the I'm busy language. I've heard that so much lately. Anyone can be busy with different things, but are you being busy with the labor of the Lord regardless of your vocation? And if so, are you anxiously toiling in vain or are you restfully laboring in the Lord? Be honest with yourself. Let's be honest with ourselves. Ask the Lord for wisdom, whichever extreme we're on. The measuring stick of being busy isn't always the most helpful, as we saw in Luke 10 and in Psalm 127, more importantly. So we need a biblical balance in our labors. We need to stop eating the bread of anxious toil and start restfully laboring in the Lord. And when we do that, we can know with confidence that in the Lord, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that our labor is not in vain. So as we restfully labor in the Lord, our slothful ease in the work of the Lord is rebuked. It's from a song that we're going to sing soon. And we're going to sing in response to this. So think of Psalm 127 as we start our response here before we go and our way out. O Father who sustained them, O Spirit who inspired, Savior whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice, defend us. From lethargy, awake. Forth on thine errands, send us to labor for thy sake. So remember, without the Lord, your labor is in vain, whether it's building a house, whatever it is, or securing and watching over a city, whatever that is. Stop eating the bread of anxious toil. Receive the gifts of sleep and sons, both physical and spiritual children, as you restfully labor in the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, our labor, is not in vain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that your grace towards us because of your work in Christ was not in vain and we have the hope of the resurrection Jesus Christ, that one day we too will be raised up to life with him. And so, Lord, help us to labor to that end. Help us to receive your gifts of sleep that sustain us now in order for us to labor more effectively. In order for us to to, uh, take part in this big work of redemption and salvation in Christ bringing many sons to glory. Help us to labor in that. Help us to have a biblical balance in restfully laboring. Help us to discern ourselves in our schedules this week and onwards, in our time management, in our sleep, with our children, both physical and spiritual. Help us to labor for thy sake and help us to restfully labor in you, our Lord, in your name, amen.